Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. I'm here with Haven Pell, who goes by The Pundificator on his social media networks and in his blog. We're going to take on a topic of major world significance, and that is the potential departure of Harry and Meghan from the royal stage. Haven, you're a bit more of an Anglophile than I am. What is the importance of this, not only to the British, but to the English-speaking world and to the world in general? Oh, and probably the galaxy. I think that there are probably entire peoples in other parts of the universe that are absolutely fraught with this terrible, grievous problem of two people out of way too many of them potentially departing what must be one of the five or 10 worst jobs in the world, along with being a congressman or a senator. But this is moving forward, and I'm sure that the publicists are armed with their spears and lances and maces and this and that uh, to try to skewer each other and have their side come out on top. Well, one of the things that I think when you sort of look into the details of this a little bit, Harry is now number six in line to the throne, if I have that correct. You've got Charles and you've got William and you've he's now got three sons, I think, is that if that's right. And so now Harry is number six. He's not going to become king. And so his departure from official royal duties, I would think would be at this point almost borderline irrelevant. Am I wrong on that? Well, in hockey terms, I think it's kind of like losing a fourth liner. You're not really thinking about somebody who plays on the power play or kills penalties or your goaltender or anything like that. You're talking about somebody who's pretty far away on the bench and the coach might not even remember his name. But yes, that seems pretty distant. There was a wonderful movie in the 1950s called Kind Hearts and Coronets in which a person was sort of 13th in line for the throne, but he wanted it. And so the whole movie is about how he killed off all the people between him and all the top 12 if he was number 13. But that would imply that Harry wanted it or Meghan wanted it. And I don't think either one would like it as long as the uh, people who are the handlers for the royal family, as long as they came along with it. I think Meghan would want her own handlers. So one of the things that is sort of interesting is that he may be number sixth in line to the throne, but he is he and Meghan are two of the most famous people on the planet at this point. And so that their notoriety is far outweighed with the official duties that they put forward. And Harry in particular has been on the world stage his entire life, especially since his mother, Diana, died. I mean, how do we square this at this point? It seems to me that everything that I've read, and that puts me about at the same level as someone who's basically flown over England as having an actual knowledge of what's going on, sort of looks at that and says, he doesn't want to do this. He's watched the example of his mother die under essentially by means of paparazzi and media attention. And and he saw the wreckage that that caused her and his family life and so on. And he's had it. And I'm sure Megan, his wife, is sort of looked at that as well and said, you know, I don't want any part of this either. And and if my official duties are essentially ribbon cutting and opening up malls and things like that, this isn't exactly what I'm after. Well, 
one would hope in his case, of course, he didn't get a choice. I mean, he was born into it, and then they try to keep them on side. In her case, I mean, she could perfectly well have said, I have a fairly decent idea what this life is like, and it's not for me, so I'm not going to get married. I'm not going to marry the guy. I mean, that would have been a choice. And I think that there are many people, there are many people in UK who, who sort of think, look, if you didn't want to do it, make a decision beforehand. That would have been perfectly fine, and the relationship would have broken up, and there would have been 20 other women who would have been perfectly happy to take that role. But she has her own success in TV and so forth, and she clearly has her own array of publicists and people who are who have her ear. She thinks that she wants to do this in a different way, and she's probably tired of sort of catty criticism that goes along with all of it. And so now they're saying they want out. The piece that struck me as potentially quite interesting or amusing is how would you go about negotiating that departure? I mean, you and I have both worked with family offices, I'm sure. I know I did. Family-owned companies that have all the difficulties of running a business and then all the difficulties of having Thanksgiving dinner together. And sometimes there are people who aren't that talented, who want roles and, and so forth. And so running family businesses is pretty difficult. And this is kind of the granddaddy of all family businesses. Imagine being supported by the royalties from the Duchy of Cornwall, that pointy little bit down at the bottom of England that points out at, towards Ireland. And there is some royalties that come to him through his father that pays for 95% of his expenses. And he has assets in his own right. It struck me, as seemed to me, I read something that he has about $40 million of his own. And uh, she's apparently got about five. So it's not, I mean, really, they don't need to do much. And I would imagine that the negotiations between the royal family and him and her and various other interests would have to do mostly with how can we keep you from doing harm? Right. To me, as I sort of thought about it, I thought there were two huge issues. The first one is who is in charge of the security and what is that going to look like? When it's in England and in London and so on, I think they've got a long tradition, the royal family that is, has a long tradition of how things are taken care of. They've got other structures in place with the media, the police force. There are a lot of things that have already been bedded in. With the move to Canada and going cross-jurisdiction, et cetera, there are a lot of different complications in play there. And it's not cheap. And I think the, there's a real question as to if you want to fulfill sort of Harry's dictate that they want to be financially independent, are they going to be financially independent with respect to the security? And I imagine that is a gigantic bill, uh, not least of which it intermingles with, in a sense, British national security. I mean, the, the members of those families would be target one if you were to try to exert pressure on the British state in one way or another. So that's one avenue. Who's in charge of the security? What's that going to look like? Who pays for it? All of which you know, sort of goes from the practical to the public relations aspect of it. The second one goes squarely to the theme you just brought up, which is how do we allow you to take the business risks that you want to take in order to be financially independent without doing the harm to the, let's call it the brand of the crest. And that is something that family businesses, they struggle with that all the time. How do you give the kids enough of a leash 
to go out and make mistakes, but at the same time, give them the ability to row their own boat. And you've got a, a real problem here in that the Megan and Harry and their new child, they've got some financial wherewithal, but they've taken the position. They've got this Sussex Royal brand that they want to develop and turn into something. How do they do that without that potentially being a dilution of the general Royal brand? And that's something that this is a case of first impression, I think, for the folks in England. The last, if I remember correctly, Princess Anne's her husband was a photographer, but he was a photographer in his own right. And he brought that in with him before that was consummated and was able to go out and profit off of that based on his previous reputation. And he didn't really mind the royal component that much uh, or as much as he could have. This is completely different. The strength of whatever they're trying to build is going to be on the backs of the direct and implied nexus to the royal brand. And that's something that they're going to have to work out. And I don't know how you do that in terms of establishing control slash points of protocol or the things that are going to fly or not fly. Crazy stuff. Well, imagine, I mean, imagine for a moment if they decide to launch a pot farm. Marijuana is legal in a lot of places, but if you could create quite a brand called Sussex Royal and be deeply moving into the world of farming marijuana. That might be appalling to the royal family. Worse, if they decided that they wanted to open a string of porn websites, Sussex Royal, get your porn here. And clearly, I mean, I think you make a really interesting point, and I hadn't thought about this. And that is, with respect to the security, I have met very few people in my life who wanted to be dead. Most people don't want that, and it's a pretty good motivator. And so if the idea was that if you behave yourself, we will continue to pay for your security, then that could be a motivator that would be fairly effective. I found myself, when we decided that we were going to do this topic, I was sort of trying to think, how do you have an ongoing motivation for someone to behave? Because for sure, somebody is going to say something that is offensive to one of the others and they're going to snipe back and it could escalate and people would be motivated to do a tell-all book or movie or TV appearance or whatever that could be pretty devastating. And I found myself trying to think, and I think you've come up with a good one, what do you do that keeps somebody motivated to do what you want them to do for 30, 40, 50 years. Well, in theoretically a royal post, there are lots of people in the American scheme who graduate from business and go on to ambassadorships and things like that. And that's not too much different from what we're talking about here. If it's already ready-made, that's great. I think the problem is that a lot of the royals sort of limp into the position without having achieved a whole lot themselves. And so they come in with a battered sense of self-esteem, Harry and William both had good military service. And Harry, you know, he started the Invictus Games for military disabled, which I thought was a, a really good program. And I think he gets a lot of credit for that. Their philanthropic efforts are well known. And so he's got some accomplishment there, but there's something, I think, within his psyche that's eating away at him. And now that he's started a family, 
with another high-profile woman with her own thoughts as to how things should be. For all the hand-holding and structure and theoretical education that the handlers could provide, he sounds like he's remarkably ill-equipped to sort of ascend to the role. And I think he senses that. And that's why he wants to pull himself and his family out. I don't understate for a second the importance of what he went through with the death of his mother. And I think that he is desperate to avoid that kind of lifestyle and combine that with maybe a a lack of purpose within the structure. That's where we are now. And it leads to sort of coming into flying back from Canada, dropping bombs in front of the royal family about how this is how it's going to be. And nobody's prepared for anything. The problem is, is that he's jeopardizing the launch of what he wants to try to do. Well, it is not unprecedented for wives to have influence over their husbands. This is not new news that this can happen. And it is entirely possible that she never really signed on to the thing in the first place and is is able to sort of bend his ear and guide him in a direction that she might like to go. I clearly don't know this firsthand because I've never met him, but I have certainly heard, and it is not wild speculation, that he may not be the sharpest knife in the drawer. So it's not entirely surprising that he could be guided in a particular way if that was what you wanted to do. Well, if we get back to Megan for a second, and I, for being one of the most famous women on the planet, I know very little about her. I know a little bit about her career. I obviously can't get away from her in the current media. She's got her well-publicized issues with her family. Her father was essentially disinvited from the wedding, which was crazy to me. At the same time, he's running around, in a sense, courting the media and coming up with pretty much fictitious stories about upbringings and things like that. And I sort of look at that and say, this is someone who's also forged a career in Hollywood. I mean, she's not a movie star necessarily, but had a long run on a TV show and had other scenarios. So she's come from a place of toughness to be able to get where she is. And she's now front and center on the world stage. You don't get there in a sense by being a shy violet. And I agree with you. I think she, I think her influence on the situation is outsized. And she's telling Harry, this is, this is what I want. This is what I want for my family. And we've got to make this happen. Add on to that. And I believe she has Sunshine Sachs, uh, Ken Sunshine's firm advising her from an American perspective. She's She's got her own people whispering in her ear, as you said before. And I think that that's something that the royals... When they've had that kind of experience, it's been traumatic. We're going back to Wallace Simpson days and maybe some other points. But it'll be interesting to see how that goes forward. And the the crazy part is we're not going to really be able to look under the hood except for third-party out-of-state hearsay from so-called friends. (laughs) Well, it's interesting. I mean, like you, I've never been in the publicist business. I've never been in public relations. But I have to believe that just like the various careers that you and I have had, that they probably have Monday morning meetings and they talk about new business opportunities and they talk about what's going on and they talk about what's going on with their clients. And somebody says, wouldn't it be great if we could land Sussex Royal as a client and imagine what we could do and imagine what that internal meeting at fill in the name of a public relations firm, imagine where that would go. And sometimes they get a little bit irreverent if the sales meetings that I've been part of are any guide and people will come up with oddball ideas and wouldn't this be funny and everybody laughs and and nothing really much ever happens. But 
if you thought, hmm, I wonder how I could get a meeting with her or him and say, this is what we can do for you. And what might the publicists have in mind? And they could come up with all kinds of things. It might be a brand enhancer for Harry and Meghan to be thorns in the side of the royal family. And if you decide that you're going to cast your lot in some perhaps faintly nefarious business or at least embarrassing business, then you want to get as much publicity as you possibly can. And that could be from sharing whatever miserable experiences you've had and being part of that family. Well, I sort of look back at a thousand years of at least quasi-dignified standing in the world stage, and I hope that's not the case. But I think you're right. And it's no secret that Charles and William, I think, were sort of looking at Harry and Meghan as at least a component of a strategy to help bring new people into the fold and to bring modernity into into the royal experience. Unfortunately, it looks like they've let things bubble over. And you know, sort of the development and in the independence that's occurred is such that they've now got a summit going on and the Queen's had a 72-hour mandate. we got to get this figured out and sorted and have a strategy in place. This is sort of family business succession 101 where in our experiences and elsewhere where you try to get in and and have everybody buy into the vision of what you're trying to do going forward. And you know maybe it's something where the royals are just so tight-lipped over everything or they've delegated the difficult discussions to handlers. And of course, handlers want to keep their job. So they say yes to everyone. And then it turns into a, a big silence fest. Nothing gets accomplished. But something's bubbled over here where they've now had a definite crack in the dam pop up. And it'll be interesting to see where they go going forward on this. Well, I mean, it's interesting. I had some minimal familiarity with an organization in Japan called the Imperial Household Agency. And the Imperial Household Agency looked after the emperor and his family. And England has very much the same idea. It has a, an entity that looks after all things, all the protocol and all of this sort of thing. And there are people who say, well, I'm terribly sorry, that's just not done. And here's the ribbons that you will cut, and here's the ones that you won't cut, and so forth. And they are often as stodgy an entity as exists in any country. And they are massively behind the times of the current state of public opinion about the family that they're supposed to be looking after. But they're guardians of the tradition and all of that sort of stuff. So in a sense, you might have that on one side of the whole thing, of trying to keep this under wraps, keep it respectable, keep them from straying too far. And on the other side, you have an aggressive publicist. And saying, yeah, look, we've got a book advance here. And maybe the publicist gets paid by the hour. Maybe he gets paid a percentage of whatever he can develop. I mean, is it kind of like being an agent? So there is a motivation to go in a different direction, which is going to be hard to stop unless the person who is to be constrained is willing to be constrained. And that's what I thought was a kind of a fascinating part of this that you're not going to achieve what the royal family wants to achieve unless Harry and Meghan want that to be achieved. And how do you make them want it? 
one of the backdrops we haven't talked about yet is that this is going on in the midst of Brexit and Boris Johnson and a pretty significant election that's taken place. I'm not even quite sure how to unpack that, except that the population of Britain and the empire is looking at, at an England right now that doesn't make a lot of sense. And I think where the royal family is deeply concerned is they're, they're looking at this and saying, well, we're not part of that electoral process in a massive way, but our own house is in a similar type of disorder. You've got England, I should say Scotland and Ireland and others who are, what are we doing as part of this union? And and it's almost this royal family situation is almost a symptom of what's going on in larger Britain. And that's something that I think Charles and the Queen and William in particular are, are looking at going, we've got to set a different example at this point. If we're going to sort of be an example to tell people to hold it together for the country in general. So to that end, let's play a game with ourselves here with a few minutes we have left. So you're brought into your sage wisdom has been identified as being a possible help in the uh, sort of charting a course forward, what would be a couple of things you'd tell them based on what you're seeing? I think one of the things that I would want to do, first of all, would be to talk to them independently. I would like to be in a position if I were in the role that you described. I think I'd like to know more about each party than anyone else does. And I would want to spend some time. This, by the way, this would mean there would be absolutely no hope of complying with the Queen's 72-hour rule of trying to get this off the front pages of the newspaper. I don't think I would be able to do that. But I'd sort of want to know what do they see and find out what each party was worrying about. I mean, I happen to think about her and him. And I mean, I would have to ask them, have you imagined the possibility of getting divorced, which many marriages end in divorce and it's not... It's certainly if you're trying to create, I mean, these are two people in their 30s. You better be thinking about something like a 50 to 70 year plan. And that is a long period of time to keep people motivated to stay on side. Now, to be sure, 20 years from now, no one's going to remember who either of them is. And so it's kind of their fame vis-a-vis the royal family is a depleting resource. And nobody's going to care unless the clock ticks over and suddenly he's not fifth or sixth in line anymore. Suddenly he's second if untoward events happen. But it's more likely that he will go further down the line because his brother's children will have children and they will all slide ahead of him. And so he probably will move off into being not very noticed, much more important to the family itself than to the rest of the world. I don't think the Duke and Duchess of Windsor were very important in the 1950s. I know 20 years after he abdicated, nobody cared except the royal family. So I would want to know more about each of them than anybody else did, if that was possible. And I would also like to be in a position where each of them had confidence that I was fair-minded and that I would understand some aspect of what each one is doing, and so that maybe they trusted me. That would be another thing. I guess I would think of it, think of it as sort of like a mediation or an arbitration. Eventually, you've got to get people to agree, and how do you do that? And clearly, that involves a whole lot of listening and asking thoughtful questions and so forth. From my perspective, I totally agree with you. I mean, you've got to have a good knowledge and sense of trust with everybody in the room with you individually before you're going to be able to get 
unstuck with this problem. If someone brought me in, I would say that from a to try to get sort of quick wins and to sort of build confidence on that front, I would get everybody in agreement on the security issue first. I think that's very, very clever. I think that that is a huge motivator. Good idea. They are all unilaterally, I don't know if unilaterally is the right word, but they're all aligned in that. They want to make sure everything's right. Then let's assume the resources are enough to do it correctly. That's something that I would impress upon everyone that that is something, whether you're financially independent or not, this is the situation that you're in, Harry and Meghan. And this is one thing that helps to protect not only the royalty, but the country, frankly. And if you start building consensus from there, I think that's a doable thing. The second thing, they each have their own visions for what they want to do philanthropically. And I would try to bring them back into the fold. This wouldn't be occurring over 72 hours, but bring them back into the fold as adding input into the royal philanthropic efforts. I think that's something that can help sort of restore dialogue between the brothers and maybe bring Megan in as well in a meaningful way. And it's something that's meaningful to the royal family. And I think the third thing I'd really think about is a sort of the concept of, I guess it would be sort of like a family bank or a family venture capital arm. And it would start small because you don't want, you don't want these people making business decisions yet, but to try to have something that would align the interests of Harry and Meghan on that front with what the royal family is doing. That would not be exclusive to what Harry and Meghan want to do with the Sussex Royal brand. I think you've got to be able to let them kind of do their thing. But if they are participating in something that is officially sanctioned as royal, even if it's sort of being part of a board and adding their two cents worth and so on and so forth, I think that's a way to sort of get them involved with the family business, as it were, not just from a business sense, but from a culture sense, and to get them back and experiencing things in line with the sort of thousand year pedigree that's been in part. And then I would try to, I would have to tell the royal family themselves that the idea that you're going to have kids, you know, if you think this is going to sort of stop at Meghan and Harry, you're crazy. You've now got an heir and two spares on William's side, and they're going to want to be able to do things. This might be a way to sort of integrate entrepreneurism into something as a theme or an attribute that could provide a real good example to England. And there are going to be mistakes made, at least there'll be their mistakes, but within the guise of some connectivity to the family on some of those efforts. That's kind of where I would go at it. I don't know if that would all occur within 72 hours. I think I could probably get the security thing done in 72 hours, but the other ones are going to take a lot longer. Yeah. It's interesting. I had a fair amount of experience and liked the people very much. I looked after, when I was in the investment management business, I looked after a certain aspects of a family office. And I really thought that they did what they did extremely well. But what they did was they began talking to the next generation when they were about 16 years old. And it was fairly gentle at the outset. And then on their 18th birthday, the person who was the head employed, this sort of CEO of the family office, would arrive and talk to this person, have a great big notebook and explain what their financial situation was and would teach them all sorts of really interesting and important lessons about what it was sort of like to be them. And then it would go on further and they would become integrated to increasing degrees into the family efforts that were going on. And then they had a a lovely ceremony that they did each year where everybody who turned 21, I'm guessing, 
basically went through a ceremony of committing to the family was something that everybody had done and so forth. And all of that seems like a direction that one would wish to go, except it's too late for that. That needed to have happened 20 years ago in the case of these two. And what do you do about, in every case, a spouse is going to come from outside of the family and what sort of guidance is provided at the outset, including a sort of a vetting that says, hey, you can't marry this person. I suppose one thing that would get everybody a little bit in line would be to say, what are the things that bother all of us about the royal handlers and the people who are clicking their heels and say, oh, no, we don't do it that way? And how much does that chafe? Because my guess is that it's not only Harry and Meghan that that chafes about. It's probably all of them to one degree or another. Right. No, I think you're right. And that goes as much to say from ownership succession to management succession or execution succession. And I think there are a lot of tight lips and they've been here for a while. They do a good job for us. They've been loyal. I think there's a lot of sort of loyalty premium over execution premium, which has to be sussed out a lot. No question about it. I think, you know, if you were to throw McKinsey or Bain or one of the management consultants in there, they'd probably, you'd burn out six or seven consultants, and but they'd be happy to do it because they'd just be thinking about it for a long time, <laughs> charging you for it. Whatever the body in England that worries about tourism, they have an interest in this. And for us, the sort of whatever part of the Department of Commerce worries about attracting foreign visitors to the United States. I can't even think of what its name might be. But in England, it's a bigger deal because the whole idea of selling trips that are based on walking in the footsteps of Henry VIII, that's a big deal. And so they would have the people that who are in charge of that aspect of life in the United Kingdom would also feel that it had a voice. Well, these are all big problems that, frankly, aren't going to sort of darken my doorstep anytime soon, but it's fun to think about. It'd actually be a really cool challenge, I think, to be dropped into that situation and try to help them uh, sort of untangle everything that's built there. And, and it's sad, too. I wish them all nothing but sort of good progress going forward, because I think this is just this is as much a symptom of horrible communication as it is ill will. And if not more, I, I think they genuinely want the best for themselves, and it's just gone haywire. Well, maybe we could end on a question for each of us, and let me try asking that question. Let's say that you were parachuted into that role, and my question to you is, what chance of success do you think you would have expressed in terms of some number out of 100? I think the chance of success, me personally, I think I would give it 60%. And that's me being optimistic. And that would be me sort of going in there and saying, look, we've got to start from scratch here. And I know I'm coming in and thousand years and lineage and I don't get it and I'm not British and all that stuff. But here's what I see as the problem. And here are the things that I think are solutions. And unless everybody can kind of get get on the same page here, you're going to cause a lot of wreckage, not just for the family, but for the country. And if you could get people to believe in that initial fiery head coach speech early on, I think there's a good chance of success. It'd take a lot of hard work, but it's not digging ditches and they're not distracted with a lot of other things and they certainly have the resources. So I don't know. We'll see. I mean, by the same token, I look at it and say, I wish, as you pointed out before, this had happened 20 years ago. Yeah. 
in thinking, you asked the terrific question of what would happen if you were parachuted in. And as I've been trying to answer it, I thought that, okay, those were kind of uplifting ideas that I had. So what's the odds of success? I was sort of hovering around two in a hundred. <laughs> well, the good news is, is that I think there's so many resources that if success is just that the whole thing doesn't collapse, then, then it may be higher than two. But if success is happiness, then you might be right. True. All right. Well, this was fun. I'm glad we took on something a little sort of half pop culture, half politics, half economics there. Good stuff. Great fun, as always. And I look forward to our next one. And I must say this will sort of renew my interest in what eventually does happen to see if they could do it better than my two out of 100. Well, I'm rooting for them, so I'll go at 60. Okay. <laughs> That's a big bandwidth. Anyway, thanks for coming on again. Great pleasure. And I'm looking forward to next week. And we'll see you soon. Thank you. Great. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Wealth Actually.